This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Will County Board Member Rachel Ventura. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your election. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course. So could you tell us about what exactly this position entails and why it matters to millennials? Sure. Um, The Will County Board position is similar to what some areas call a commissioner. Um, So I will be voting on the entirety of the county when it comes to legislative some of our judicial laws, our roadways, like public works, um, water, stuff like that. Um, we'll also be voting on, uh, we have a public health in the area too. So we have a, a courthouse, a uh, 911 center, we have a uh, medical clinic. Um, so all of that stuff falls under the county. And so these are some of the things I'll be voting on. And I, mean, I think for millennials, it's super important because we're seeing uh, crumbling infrastructure that hasn't been invested in, in 50 years. We are obviously at the apex of climate change that we really, we should have already been doing stuff with this, but uh, we're really at that uh, do or die moment where we have to start um, getting into more green deals and reversing some of the climate um, effects so far. So I think that at the county level, we can uh, really implement more of the recycling and composting as well as like our new courthouse that we're building here is uh, green uh, lead certified and so building projects like that capital improvement projects that include solar panels and other renewable energies is really helpful i'm also trying to push more solar farms we have wind farms now but we don't have any solar farms so we're pushing that now in order to have that in 2019 And so things like that just become really important for our future. And you mentioned a green deal. What exactly does that mean? Well, I've been following along some of the stuff that Congress is looking at doing. And I think it means not just investing in our infrastructure for um, future jobs and um, future buildings, but also uh, investing in things that are going to be, like I said, more green and, and help reverse some of the climate effects. So the courthouse is a perfect example because we're not just putting up a new building. We're putting up a building that has um, renewable energy built into it, um, as well as some of the efficiency standards. Uh, in our area, we also, this is in Plainfield, they built a new park district, and it's 100% uh, run on renewable energies. And we um, got grants in the area to pay for that. And so the taxpayers did put in some money with a referendum, but the rest of it was paid for by some of these grants um, with very strict, stringent um, requirements for green energy. And so we're looking to do that in more areas. I also sit on the Forest Preserve as a part of being a county board member. I sit on the Forest Preserve as well. And that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at incorporating in more composting throughout the county, um, including expanding some of our green space as necessary so that we can 
reverse some of the stuff, but also educate the youth and other people how they can get involved and um, change things from a personal standpoint as well. And you mentioned the work that's being pushed on a congressional level. We've seen representatives elect like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pushing for a Green New Deal. Obviously, with a Republican president and Republican Senate, we're not going to see that happen. And we're going to continue to see an assault on the environment as well as civil rights and liberties. What can be done on a county level to defend civil rights and liberties from an executive branch and potentially a judicial branch that are hostile to them? Well, the good news is in Will County, we flipped our, our county from red to blue. We now have a majority by two seats in our county, so we are hoping to look at some of these things. A platform that I ran on was a government for all, and what that looks like is making sure we're protecting civil liberties, that we are making sure people are um, able to get fair housing, that they're able to get jobs without obviously racism or, or bigotry playing a part of that and making sure that our judicial laws protect everybody. So these are things that um, now that the Democrats have control and specifically we have quite a few progressives on our board now, we are going to um, start looking at some of these things. Now I just got sworn in on Monday, so some of this might take a little bit of time, um, but that is an agenda that we're willing to pull to the left so that more people are protected with civil liberties. One of your other campaign priorities is expanding healthcare access. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, I personally believe that we need a single-payer system, that healthcare is a right, and we should all have the right to that. At the county level, obviously, we can't vote on that, but uh, we can try to expand some of the healthcare uh, capabilities. So right now, opioids is a big issue, not just in our county, but across the country. And so providing access to treatment and um, now our, let me back up just real quick. Our sheriff's department has done a really great job of having a safe passes program where people can exchange their drugs for treatment. They also have Narcan training for anyone who wants to take it so they can get access to that, especially if one of their loved ones is known to have um, an addiction. But at the medical center, I'd like to see more treatment provided there and basically services offered to people who have addiction. That's something we don't currently have. I would also like to see some mental health care changes and uh, expansions there. We do have some right now, but um, to expand that to more areas of depression and anxiety and some of um, what's called cluster A disorders, like your personality disorders, and some people who need help and maybe you know, don't have health care through their employer or maybe can't hold down a job because of some of their mental um, uh, needs, they can go hopefully to the health department and get the need they, they um, or get the treatment they need so that they can become functioning members of society uh, on a regular basis. And I think that's really the goal of um, expanding education even on mental health care because there's such a stigma to that. And so many people you know, at small periods of time in their life have needed help and you know, they still feel that they have to hide that because of this ongoing stigma. And I think, you know, we need to start looking at mental health care the same way that we look at physical health care and the fact that if you have a cold, you're not treated as an outsider or someone who can't function. No, you treat the cold and then you go back to your day job or, or your life as usual. In many cases, sometimes depression and anxiety can be onset by 
you know, environmental factors or things that are going on in life that may be a, a temporary situation. And so you get treatment and you get right back into, you know, work in your life. Now, in other cases, it's a long-term, you know, that affects your life long-term, much like diabetes or, you know, some other ongoing medical situation. And so we start looking at healthcare from these standpoints instead of treating people like they're not part of our community. I'm really glad that you mentioned environmental factors affecting health. Something we don't hear much about is the fact that not all illnesses are inevitable. There are so many socioeconomic factors that contribute. It's why black women are disproportionately likely to die in childbirth. What what exactly is your perspective on this? And what approach can county government take to eliminating these barriers to health and the underlying reasons that certain demographics are more vulnerable to disease and illness? Yeah, there's um, several that's happening right in our county. So Will County is, we have the largest inland port in the United States and 60%, over 60% of all truck traffic in the entire United States drive through our county. Um, and so, therefore, we have a high pollutants uh, in our air. So this is a, a perfect example of um, health being affected by um, environment. So whether it's um, issues of allergies being, you know, controlling different aspects or, you know, breathing situations. So that's something that the county can look at. Now, we have a freight mobility study that we did, um, and we're going to start um, moving our ordinances and our legislation to work within the parameters of that study to make sure that we are being responsible in our building as well as quality of life issues. And so there's uh, about 12 different qualifications in order for companies to come in. Um, you know, they need to be able to, to fit these 12 qualifications. And a lot of them have to do with quality of life and making sure that their company can responsibly build without causing more pollutants or, or potentially traffic jams and accidents. And so these are things that we're beginning to look at. Food is another thing, not just access to, to good quality food, but uh, things like pesticide sprays. That's something that, you know, I'd like to look at as a county. We have a lot of agriculture in our area, so sustainable farming is another thing that changes the quality of our food. And what we eat definitely affects our health going back to the socioeconomic that you described, having access to fruits and vegetables versus, you know, box foods can completely change the way that your health is. And that's both on a mental standpoint as well as a physical standpoint. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, 
I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. How exactly does county government interact with state government? So um, any level of government can have an intergovernment agreement. So if things are happening on the state level, you know, we can work with them and then vice versa. If we need the state to come in and help us with things, hopefully that's something we can uh, come to a conclusion on. Now, again, luckily, Illinois flipped um, some of their House seats and you know, general assembly seats with the Senate. Um, as well as our governor. So we're hoping to be able to, again, move the agenda to the left, which hopefully will provide more access for health care and civil rights and a government for all, good jobs. Um, a minimum of $15 minimum wage would be really nice to have in our area. So things like that um, should, you know, should affect the county uh, at the, you know, the state makes laws that would affect the county. Uh, we have I-80 that is runs through our our county and it has accidents on it daily it has multiple deaths throughout the year because of the strip of area with the warehouses and the inland port there is a lot of truck traffic that goes through we have several issues with not having shoulders on some of our freeways a bridge that's well overdue um, that's not up to standards that needs to be Repair and in fact, overweight trucks have been routed off of the bridge because of the crumbling infrastructure. So these are all issues that we have to work with the state on. We have to bring in state funding and potentially federal funding in order to fix these things that are much needed. Uh, and this goes right to a quality of life issue. I won't even drive on the freeway if, if there's any way to avoid it. I absolutely avoid it because I don't want to put myself or my children at risk. And on what issues do you view state government as allies? And are there any where you could imagine the governor and the legislature being an impediment to a progressive agenda? At this point, because like I said, we've, we've changed some of the politics in Springfield. I don't anticipate that being um, a roadblock. But of course, you know, everyone has their own agendas to try to get um, passed. So it's possible that that may be a future roadblock, but hopefully right now everyone's on the same page. One of the things that I'm excited about, the um, governor had run on a platform of legalizing marijuana. Now, I already explained the opioid problem in our, our county is, is been an issue. And I think that speaks to if that, I'm sorry, if the state passes that, then that is a, a treatment that we could go down on the county level, you know, we could try to get people who need treatment from opioids, maybe switch them over to pain management um, marijuana, and that would lessen the addiction on heroin. So things like that can be solutions for us on the county level if the state um, passes things like that. Obviously, if they pass a $15 minimum wage, that would really affect the quality of life in our area. Our, our minimum wage um, is a little over $8. And there's a lot of warehouse jobs here now. And those are very labor-intensive jobs that don't always pay well. Um, in fact, with Amazon increasing their minimum wage of $15 an hour, that does help out here because we do have an Amazon distribution center 
here in our area. So by increasing one major warehouse, it does help elevate the other uh, rates as well. Um, and last thing I guess I'll say about um, the amounts of money that people get paid in the area is our previous governor, Ronner, really pushed for our state to be right to work. And that, it, I believe, is a detriment to the working class. And so with J.B. Pritzker being elected as our governor, the hope is that he'll continue to protect unions. And I believe that unions help elevate wages for everybody. Uh, obviously, they have better work working conditions, but that also helps elevate other companies um, to do better because they have to compete with the union labor. So you identify as a progressive Democrat. You were endorsed by Our Revolution, though Our Revolution doesn't only endorse uh, Democratic Socialists. It was founded by a lot of Bernie Sanders staffers. Bernie Sanders is probably the most well-known Democratic Socialist in the country. I was wondering if you identify with or have any thoughts on this label. Uh, Yes. So I was raised by a Democratic mother and a socialistic father. So I have a blend, I feel, of both. So the, when the progressive movement really took off and there was a label for, for progressive, I immediately identified with uh, many of the, the platforms, um, I guess all of the platform. And when I look at government, when I ran on a platform of uh, government for all, and I see what is working in our government, it is the socialistic um, aspects of our government that work the best. Our public schools, our roadways, our police, our fire uh, libraries. <laughs> so these are areas where we all pay a little and everybody gets a service. And so I know that a lot of times people like to demonize the word socialist, but when you really look at the aspects of our government that are working and working well, that is what it is. And so I would like to you know, move us towards that. When we privatize things, what we see is people who have money get those services and people who don't have money don't get those services. And that's not a government for all. And so I really think that when you look at um, privatizing things, that's a problem. And as a government official, I would like to see things um, be more for the public, by the public. And how do taxes factor into this? We often hear progressives talk about fair taxation, about the wealthy paying their fair share. What does that actually mean? What do those rates look like? So in Illinois, we have a state flat tax rate. Now, in and of itself, if there were no loopholes, one would argue that that is kind of a progressive tax because the more money you make, the more, you know, if you pay a 5% tax rate, the more money your 5% would yield than a smaller um, salary. However, the flip side of that is there's a lot of loopholes on the top end. And so what should be by nature, maybe a progressive tax isn't because the people who have money or the people who can afford to hire CPAs find ways to uh, move money around or have tax shelters you know, or loopholes so that they don't pay as much. Um, so that's part of the problem. So in Illinois, our tax rate is protected by the Constitution. So in order to get what other states consider a progressive tax or like our um, federal tax is a progressive tax because it increases um, as the amounts go up, uh, your salary amounts go up, your tax rate increases. Um, In order for that to happen, we would need to open the Constitution and have um, enough votes in order to pass an amendment to that. One way to do it in our state would would be to change the loopholes without opening the Constitution. 
Um, I'm not sure if that's um, that right now is not something I believe J.B. Pritzker is looking at doing, nor the House or the Senate. The word is still out on what that's going to look like. Um, at our level of government, though, for the county level, you know, we have a property tax and we set the we've been trying to keep the property tax very low for our county. Um, and that is a flat rate and it's based on millage of your obviously your home. So in a sense, one could argue that's also a little bit of a, a progressive tax because the more valuable your home is, the higher rate that you would pay. Um, and there are a few exemptions like homestead and senior um, which would lower those, but there's obviously not nearly as many loopholes as the state taxes. And where can people find you online and how can they stay in touch with you? Well, the best way is probably just to Google my name, Rachel Ventura. Uh, I am on Facebook and I apologize. I don't have, I think it's Rachel F. Ventura. My Twitter handle is Elect Ventura. And um, my Instagram is, is linked to my Facebook. And I believe that's also Rachel F. Ventura. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking about your agenda. It was really great to hear from you. And we hope to get you on again to see what progress you've made. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, of course. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. If you want to stay up to date with the Millennial Politics Podcast, make sure to follow us on iTunes and social media and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8pm Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening. (music) 